So I asked him, what do you do for a living? And he introduced himself as a slave hunter. And he took a call and it was while we're at the dinner table, he took a call speaking to Condoleezza Rice, who was working for the Bush administration. Yeah. And he was arguing with her about the downgrading of India on the human trafficking register. Today's guest is Tim Nelson, CEO of Hope for Justice. You will hear his story of coming through the troubles in Northern Ireland, international travel, and ultimately being challenged with bringing an end to modern day slavery in our time. Uh, what Verick alluded to is we, we ran a test earlier this year with our investigators, and it took just less than 30 minutes from setting up a fake profile of a girl for uh, someone who would look to exploit that girl for three individuals to contact them. Because if we can set up a fake profile and it's happening within 30 minutes, it could happen to one of your children. And if you could do one or two things to stop that from happening, it would be like the equivalent of locking or, or bolting your door at home. Mm. If you knew that that stopped someone coming in, you'd definitely do it. Or you put the alarm on when you're leaving. You do something to try and enable it to happen. So take men take responsibility from that perspective. Sit back with Mr. Fitz today and be inspired and challenged at the same time. We all can make a difference. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mr. Fitz podcast. I'm Varric. This is John, and our guest today is the CEO of Hope for Justice, an international human trafficking rescue organization. And you guys are in for a treat today because we you may not even have heard what human trafficking is. You're going to learn about that. You're going to learn about how we can make a change in that and what that entails and, and not just in what you're thinking, but what it looks like in business and something called the Slave Free Alliance we'll talk about today as well. Uh, but I want you guys to meet Tim Nelson, who is, the, as I said, the CEO of Hope for Justice, but he's a lot more than that. Just like you guys are more than the role that you have in your job, uh, you had a history uh, that brought you here, that put you in this place. And we want to kind of explore a little bit of that. So Tim, you've got an accent that's not usual for <laughs> us down here, uh, me in Florida, John in Alabama. Your accent is a little more Northern, but but Northern Irish. Yes. Uh, is that, that's, that's, that's true. So I want you to tell us a little bit, share with us a little bit today um, about your upbringing. We were discussing some pretty pretty interesting things that John is going to be like, wow, uh, that kind of ties us in even to some of our music when we were growing up here in the United States and certain bands that, uh, that spoke on some things that, that you, that you have ties to. But uh, I, I want to hear more about how your upbringing prepped you without you knowing for what you're doing today, speaking before heads of nations, yeah. as opposed to growing up and, um, doing some of the things that you did in Northern Ireland, you and I have known each other for seven years, Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit more than seven years, uh, but not much more. And I've grown to have a great friendship with you. Yeah. We talk on a regular yeah. basis and it's a privilege to do that. And I know some things, but you're going to share some of those with us today because we as men are different parts, right? That's what the Mr. Fitz podcast is about, tuning into those different parts, having integrity in every single part of our lives. You're going to talk a little bit about the hard stuff today, the substances and vices part that is the underbelly of kind of the world. But you're also a dad of four. Yeah. You're married yeah. and you have to balance yeah. all of that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but share with us a little bit about your history, your upbringing and what that was like in Northern Ireland. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's really, really great to be with you all today. Um, and so value Verick and our relationship and, and, and kind of honor this man for everything that he is and, and what he brings to my world, a real, real friend, an armor bearer in everything that I'm doing. So um, you, yeah, my, my voice and accent, I've been told that you're gonna put subtitles on for everybody if they don't quite understand what I'm saying today. Uh, but I, I grew up in, in Northern Ireland in, in actually quite a, a rural area of Northern Ireland. Uh, so I grew up about three miles away from where St. Patrick first planted the first church into Ireland. And um, so quite a, a kind of traditional background. My dad was a painting contractor. So he painted schools and hospitals. And I know I grew up doing that. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm good for those kind of jobs around the house. Uh, much to much to my wife would like me to do a bit more. I uh, just don't have the time. But um my mum actually had a quite a key role in, in Northern Ireland at the time of the Troubles. So she was principal private secretary to the Northern Irish office, a, a chap called Willie Whitelaw, 
who then went on to be the cabinet secretary and in charge of all policing in the UK. And it was at the time where uh, there were, there were, you know, the, the threat level for life was, was significant. So my mum and dad, when we were um, building our house in the area that we're in, there was a car bomb planted outside of our house. And we had to grow up with that level of threat level of, of potentially checking under vehicles. You know, you would hear reports on a regular basis of people who would be killed because they turned on the ignition on the car. Uh, and and they, because of the role that they did or the responsibility that they carried, they were a potential threat. And it's really on that backdrop, my parents, I've got three siblings, uh, we were brought up to believe that we wouldn't stay in Northern Ireland, that you would go. And um, I was always a bit itchy to see the world. Uh, and from I can remember from about eight years old, I, I met a, a maybe a second cousin twice removed who was from Australia. And he encouraged me to go to Australia. Hmm. Uh, from the age of eight, I was on that nail every single year. I was to my parents, I need to go. And when I was 15, my mom and dad let me go traveling to Australia and Malaysia on my own for just over six months. And uh, life-defining, uh, you know, it was so crazy because I was on the plane on the way over to Australia and I'd fallen asleep and the chap next to me um, was asked, you know, when they come around for the chicken or the beef, that the options they're going to give you, um, he, he said, well, what does your son want? And he goes, he's not my son. And then they discovered that while I was asleep that I'd come on a plane and you're not meant to fly transatlantically unless you've got a guardian or a parent or you've got some proportion of person who's been given responsibility for your care. So there's a whole heap of hassle that happened when we were, when we were kind of at 30 or 40,000 square feet. Uh, but what, what ended up happening um, when I went on that trip was I got a sense of seeing the world for what it really was. I got to see a lot of the problems and the heartaches and the hardships that were happening. And I think that trip taught me a lot about me, who I am as a person. Probably made me quite resilient um, in terms of being able to be on my own and have my own thoughts and and really come to grips with who I am. And I don't think a lot of people ever really get that sense of who they are. Uh, the following year, when I was 16, I did three and a half months in Venezuela, Guyana and Brazil. I did some reforestation projects and community projects that we did there. And it just had such a profound impact on my life. And then when I went to university, uh, I, I went with a view, my siblings, my three siblings all did law. They all went into law. They all married lawyers. They, you know, the, that was a big thing. They all moved to London. And I'd said I'd really wanted to go into stockbroking. I'd seen what I probably was more caught up with what stockbrokers earned than anything else. But I'd seen what they, they did. And I looked at what advantage I could get that would get me into stockbroking. Because unless you've got a family member in it, you really need to have something that's an advantage that you would have above everyone else. So I went and studied uh, technology. And at that time, there were only three main courses that were running. One was in Barcelona in Spain. One was in Queensland, Australia. And one was in this place, Bradford in West Yorkshire, about three hours north of, of London. Didn't know anybody there. Didn't know anything about the city at all. Uh, but I went to the university there to study that. And when I was coming towards the end of my degree, I'd been involved in an evangelical church. And I got involved in a way that we'd the church had really grown. We were making an impact with the poor and the marginalized, the weak, the oppressed, a lot of people across the city that were hurting, that we were helping. And I just felt really almost like a God prompt to say, stay where you are. And much to my parents' bemusement, I, I, I turned down the job offer to go work for Lehman's in London or Chase in Manhattan. And if I'd taken the job with Lehman's, they obviously went bust um, off the bas back of the crisis in 2001. And then if I'd taken the job in Chase, I would have been in the Twin Towers when they went down. So it made me think a lot about decisions and about why I was doing things and what I was doing. And I went into a job in retail banking. And th there I was helping a portfolio of, of customers. And that had come about because I'd part worked part-time while I was going through university uh, for a, a telephone-based service that would help people who are working in corporate and commercial, offshore, direct business banking, people who are in, in kind of high level in business. And um, and when I decided I was going to stay, didn't have a job to go to, they had heard that I was I was staying. And I went and did a, a, a job advert that for a business advisor role. And when I went to do the, the, the advert and, and went for the interview, I knew every question that they possibly could imagine because I've been trained for the last couple of years while I was at university. Um, so it's kind of unfair advantage that I had, but I finished something like second of all time in the exams that they did. And they came back quite quickly to offer me a manager's role, which made me the youngest business manager in the bank in the country. 
And as you can imagine, that kind of role carries with it a lot of hate. Everybody who's had to work for 20, 30 years to get to that level in the bank and who's this Johnny come lately who thinks he's going to walk into a job and, and do well in it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I loved it mm-hmm. because I was like, the bank offered me when I finished college to, to literally, they would pay for my lunch, my, my breakfast, my dinner. They would allow me to go and see any show I want to, like any sporting event I wanted to go to. Uh, as long as I was bringing clients, it was, it was covered. It was expensible. So I'm like, this is amazing. I never have to cook. I can just go and see the, see the world. So I, I did, but I would bring my clients with them. And I always went on the view that everything runs on the speed of relationship. Relationship is absolutely everything. And that if it, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, until you're actually building relationally in a way that you, 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 you're doing life together. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's perfect. We all can learn from each other. No one of us is smarter than the whole total of everyone together. So therefore, there's always something you can bring to the party, something you can learn from people. So those people that were clients became friends. Yeah. And they loved it. And I loved it. And, and I think because most of my peers were probably 20 years older, they all had families, didn't want to ever go out in the weekends. Everyone was amazed that the bank would be willing to take them out to see their top sporting event or, or anything like that. And I, I loved it. Um, but I think the, the thing that shifted for me was that I could understand I could do this well mm-hmm. and I could build relationally and give them what they needed and the bank would do well. So yeah. a byproduct of that was that I would do well. And in my first year, I finished third out of 3,000 managers for income generation, which sent shockwaves because it's like, we don't have to have someone who's done 20, 30 years in the bank to get to this position. We can bring people in. And, and certainly they tried to model what had my, my working basis and what I did on across the bank. I did that for a few years. And the church that I'd been a part of asked me to come on staff um initially to do the business aspect of what we were doing and then as it grew it more laterally took on conferencing events and then into uh, kind of the finance aspect of what we were doing but it was on that job one of my previous customers who from the bank was setting up an offshore investment trust and he was looking to put a couple of hundred million dollars into high-tech stocks in america and asked me to be an advisor and i found myself traveling across america got to see some of your amazing country and um and and trust when you're growing up in northern ireland it feels like a million miles away from anything you can imagine but i had a night spare in los angeles and a friend of mine who i'd known from home who'd worked as for a children's charity and he invited me for a dinner on sunset boulevard Mm -hmm. and we went to pick up this chap um who was a friend of his from his home and he had fbi agents watching outside his house and i was like who is this guy like crazy nobody in my circle has any of that going on and um he you know i've dressed the best that i possibly can i'm never going to win any prizes but at the same time i'm doing all that i can with what i have and sunset boulevard is only something i've heard on films like pretty woman and things like that where you you know you watch the the movies and you think wow this is amazing it's so far in my world and this guy rocks up with hair that looks like it's not been washed for a couple of months and he's wearing combat trousers i'm like who is this guy so i asked him what do you do for a living? Because that's normally the first question that most men ask to try and sure. contextualize, to put people into a box. You know, who is this person? Well, he does this. He sits in that box. And um, he introduced himself as a slave hunter. And I was like, what? Like, have I, I misheard you? You know, kind of, no, I work as a slave hunter. And I'm thinking, you know what, if you have to pick out insurance online and you're trying to select what, what you do for a living, your- they, don't, they don't have that as an option. But yeah, sorry. So I was going to stop you right there. So that's a. How old were you at, at this time? The time that you're on Sunset Boulevard. Um. Uh, by this stage, I am twenty. Do, 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 I would say I'm twenty-seven. So twenty-seven. So I, I want to go back. Yep. Two two quick questions. One, and it's really more of an observation. How your parents? You, you go from having a car bomb outside of your home. Mm-hmm. How do your parents handle that? Because most of our reaction is if that happens, A, we're moving, we're having armed armed guards, you know, from now on, and it's a this. But yet your parents embraced you seeing the world and getting out. So how was fear handled in your home? Mm-hmm. And how did your parents handle that? And then I've got one, one more follow-up question to that. Yeah, so we did, we, we, you got to a view of if someone wants to kill you, they're going to kill you. That's the, the mindset. And, uh, so and this is just, seven years old. 
Well, yeah, you, whenever you're growing up, that, like the, the mindset of what you're hearing is yeah. happening. If someone's to get you, they can get you. Sure. You know, the, the, you might have whatever you put, protocols you want to put mm-hmm. in place. If they can get, you know, more laterally, if they can get to the Jap, former Japanese prime minister, yeah. someone's to get you, they can get you. But the, the view that we had was very different. And my dad was very, very, I would say, strong on not being fear, not seeing fear come on you. So he would have um, paramilitary groups that would come to the places that he was working. Mm -hmm. And he would have men who would be, you know, 20, 30 men working on a job that are painting a hospital or a school or whatever. Mm -hmm. And some would come around and say, if you do not give us money, we're going to petrol bomb what you've just put in place. Hmm. And it's all going to be gone. Wow. And in that view, there's there's probably three or four different options you can do. Mm -hmm. But his view was always, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to pay that because if I pay that once, I'm going to be, I'm going to be milked for everything I possibly can get. So go ahead. If this is what you're mm-hmm. going to go and do, go ahead. Okay. And there's a certain sense that we would, we would, we'd have to be careful about what we were doing. We came from an area that was probably a Republican area, someone who was an area that wanted to be more a United Ireland, but we would travel through areas that would be more Protestant, more um, kind of unionist, in terms of what there's that and i'd had a great great grandfather who was part of the orange order which if you know northern irish politics it, uh, there was a, a you know a, a massive battle that was fought, fought in 1690 this is how long ago it was <laughs> the battle of boyne where um william who was a protestant king defeated the Protestant king from uh, uh holland defeated um the, the catholic king mm-hmm. and off the back of it People still to this day are indoctrinated with the mindset of hatred to another religion. Hmm. And we would, we had a great, great grandfather or whatever who had who'd been part of this. And there was kind of culturally people were always in group community groups. So that's where they got their affiliation. But we would literally travel with one of those under our car seat. Wow. And I can remember being stopped on the 11th of July after I got my test mm-hmm. and traveling home by a group of kind of rogues mm-hmm. who, um, you know, you pull down your visors, you can't see who they are. Yeah. And they've got massive um, kind of bonfire in the middle of the road. Yeah. And if you say the wrong thing, where are you going, what name you are, what, they're going to just torch your car. And none of this ever got on the news at all. But across, across what we were, we were brought up with was a mindset of don't lie fear to come into your world. Mm. I went to school in the center of Belfast, so I had to travel over an hour every day on the, on the bus to get in. Mm-hmm. And one morning I was coming in, there was a controlled explosion done on a building. All the entire front windows in our school went out. That's what happened because it was kind of what you assume. And so I see a lot of what's going on at the moment in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking how normalized that becomes in your culture, how fear can come in. So in our house, in our family, you know, there's a sense that, People who are not educated end up getting involved in arguments that are not anything to do with what the real reality is on the ground. Sure. Poverty is so horrible for so many people's lives. And a lot of what people were rebelling about was the state of the jobs that were available or the opportunities that they had. And our, my parents looked at it and went, well, the life choices that you have, if you see the world, if you get a different exposure mm-hmm. to the world, is that maybe you could do something we couldn't have done. Sure. And my dad said that whenever he was 18, he had the opportunity to travel to America, mm-hmm. to go and live in America, and he didn't take it. Mm-hmm. And he always regretted it. Mm-hmm. And he told me one other thing. My grandfather got chosen for the London School of Art. He was such a talented artist, mm-hmm. and his parents wouldn't let him go. Mm-hmm. And as a result of it, he went into being a painting contractor. Mm-hmm. It was said that he could convert a, a piece of plyboard and make it look like mahogany wow. um, from what he was doing. But it was fit mindsets that stop people seeing a bigger world or a bigger vision. So I think I think I, I certainly got that view. Mm-hmm. I also got the risk taker kind of aspect of my dad, just like go Imagine. see the world. If you want to go see the world, raise the money, I'll match it. Mm-hmm. Maybe possibly thinking I wouldn't do it, but. Sure. Off the back of it, I, I certainly don't think there was there was a fear in us. There was a, an appreciation of the risk, mm-hmm. but there was a sense of going, well, we'll be trying to do everything we can to make sure that this isn't a problem, but it could still be a problem. So that's really good. So appreciating risk, but weighing that and still moving forward, right? Yeah, and because even for your family, you have to do that sure. all the time. Yeah. 
you know, your kids could every single day be in a, a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. As long as you teach them well what to do in certain circumstances, then hopefully they'll take the right choices. Yeah. So, so you also were talking about how important relationship is. And it's interesting to me, two generations worth uh, of, of dad and granddad who had opportunity didn't step into opportunity, mm -hmm. but your dad broke that and mm -hmm. said, no, you're going to step into opportunity. So guys, I think there's a teaching point here for us coming through two years of COVID and everybody kind of hunkering down and trying to deal with fear, right? Mm -hmm. You're wanting to hold on to what you got. You're wanting to keep everybody healthy and everything um, to the point of where does it become something that hinders generation, generationally our kids versus let's assess risk and let's, let's encourage our kids to get out there. So you're, you're one of your biggest take homes that helped you get to Sunset Boulevard, which mm -hmm. we're coming back <laughs> to uh, was born out of seeing risk and you being encouraged to step into it and develop relationship. Yeah. I've never thought of it yeah, that way, but that's that, pretty impressive. That, that's definitely a, a learning from that. And I think, I think, you know, you were all, I've got three siblings and we're all very different. You know, it's mm -hmm. amazing how you can all be from the same family, but all yeah. be very, very different in your approach. But I, I think, I think for me, I was the one who was probably more like my dad in terms of the risk taker. So they all wanted to go to law because it was a very set profession. Sure. It had, you Same. know, you knew what they got paid, that there was a safety in it, but also there was a sense that if you went to the market, you got paid really, really well for it. We'd been, my dad, his job had, he'd had really great years where things had gone financially really well, but then he'd also have really tough at times in the recessions where, yeah. You know, painting is one of the last things that you want doing if you don't have the money. Yeah. So they, as a result, he he went through years where they had to lay off staff, and we did without, and mm -hmm. all of that 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 you go through. It's just it, it builds in you a sense of understanding. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things that you say, I'm not going to tolerate this in my life, mm -hmm. and other things that you go, that was really great. I'm going to welcome it. And yeah. I, I think I think of myself almost like a gardener, mm -hmm. where I get to decide what I have in my life based on yeah. what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, gardener gets to say, I'm going to grow this in this space at this time. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I need to grow it there forever, but I'm, I'm not going to allow that other thing, that weed to grow up that I've seen grow in other people's lives. I'm just not going to let that happen. Yeah, that's huge. And I, I think that if you, it's almost like things happen either by design or by default. Mm -hmm. And unless you're intentional about what you're going to plant in your world, the people that you spend and do life with, the, the relationships that you get around, you can have this default position where you find yourself just pulled into a weird and wonderful world where you're around people that are doing crazy things, but that's not who you are. Mm -hmm. And the more that I've gone through life, the more I've been selective. Well, that didn't work out for me or I tried that, but that means I'm not going to go there again. I'm just learning from it. Yeah, that's really, really good. And uh, I think where we're going to next is you were talking about things that you're not going to allow in your life are also things that you're not going to tolerate. And that takes you to Sunset Boulevard. What did you see there? Yeah, so I, I think when, when I went on this evening, I didn't know what to expect because I thought this was just going to be a good evening, out, a nice dinner and, sure. and kind of see some sights and take some pictures and go home. When this guy came um, and he'd, he'd introduced him as that, I was interestingly uh, intrigued. You know, you find out a bit about what people do and you, I want to ask more questions. I always ask loads and loads and loads of questions. I find myself probably I'm the one in the room who's asking the awkward question. Well, how did you get into that? And what are you doing in, in this space? But he described to me how uh, kind of how difficult this was in the world, that there were so many people that were being enslaved. Mm -hmm. And he took a call, and it was while we're at the dinner table, he took a call speaking to Condoleezza Rice, who was working for the Bush administration. Yeah. And he was arguing with her about the downgrading of India on the human trafficking register. And I was like, that's mental. You're speaking to someone who is one, one degree away from the president. In combat shorts. Yeah, yeah. Just like, <laughs> no no like, air wash. For yeah, yeah, just, yeah okay. just looks like. I don't know, I, you use terms hillbilly or whatever. Yeah. It just looks like somebody that's come from the middle of nowhere. Right? Yeah. And when he came off the phone, mm -hmm. I started asking more questions because I said, you spoke on the phone to complete stress about seeing girls in cages in mm -hmm. Mumbai. I'm like, girls in cages, what are you talking about? Yeah. And he pulls out his phone and he shows me picture after picture after picture of girls in cages. Mm -hmm. And when you're, I, I, what I've realized about men is we, we want to fix things. So when I've presented with a picture, I go, I go, well, can I give you some money? 
is it because I'm thinking like, can I give you some money? Because that sounds amazing. If you can see girls rescued from cages, can I give you some money? He said, no, I don't need you to give me money. I just need you to give your life to actually making an impact in this area. And I was like, that's a big ask. I was like, right. oh, 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 like going to Sunset Boulevard and having dinner. It's very different to this. And, he, and then he goes on and says, I bet you there are people tonight that are crying out to God in your city for mm. God to move and help. And God's waiting for people to stand up and do something about this issue. They might not be using cages, but it's going on where you live. I went, it is not going on where I live. Yeah. No one has ever said that it's never been in a newspaper article. I can understand India. You're talking about the UK. Yeah. Come on, one of the most developed nations in the world. Th this cannot be going on. He said, go back, do your research. It's definitely going on. See mm -hmm. what you can do. So I came back and my wife can testify to the fact that I was up nights on it. Just couldn't couldn't let it go at all. You know, just something of it gripped me. Yeah. And um, and it was a difficult time for us because I bought a piece of land and we were building our first home. Mm -hmm. I, my wife was expecting our first child. So it's just like the most inconvenient time to have anything come into your world ever. It always is. That, yeah, God, God usually does that. He's, he doesn't check our schedule. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's something I've so I, I spoke to one of my previous customers, good friend, uh, who ran a car dealership group, a guy called Chris. Mm -hmm. And Chris uh, had met four individuals in Manchester. One of them was Ben, who had a vision to put on a first event for, for what we would do to tell people about the issue. Okay. And there were like 10 of us that got together. And 11 months later, we had our first event. And we managed to gather 5,884 people to launch the first event. Now, again... That was only possible because of relationships, because of everything mm -hmm. that had come before. And you realize you're building things that are yes. for the future. So when I was at the church, I built relationships with the likes of John Foreman uh, from Switchfoot. He had just done the Spider-Man mm -hmm. 2 track and he flew over for our first event. Wow. Um, I'd met Tim Hughes, who had released Here I Am to Worship, which had just mm -hmm. gone big in the church internationally. Tim came, agreed to come. And the guys from Delirious, who I'd met before and when we'd looked at some of the music and publishing from the church, agreed to come and do the event. And I'd, I'd seen a, a small Anglican church in Northern Ireland, uh, no, in, in Northern England, sorry, called St. Andrews. And they were doing an event with the first part of that St. and And, and they were calling a Friday night event called The Stand. So we said, well, why don't we just call it The Stand? Because I'd love it to be that people could take a stand against this issue about people being enslaved in sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, labor trafficking. We need to take a stand against it all. And that was the launch of Hope for Justice. It really was. We, we At that point in time, we didn't have a 10-year a, a vision for what we were doing. We didn't have a three-point plan. It was very much, hey, we don't know what we need to do. We just, we're entering into this. And we think we can do something of impact. And where it came to bear that was really interesting for me, a couple of years on, we launched our first investigative hub and we launched it in my city. Hmm. We launched it in, in actually the, the, the city where I lived, the city where I went to university, we launched it there covering an area uh, of West Yorkshire, 2.2 million people mm -hmm. able to recruit the former divisional commander of the police for that area. And he came to run our investigative hub yeah. to put it in context. The entire police force across England and Wales had run an operation called pentameter one. Okay. And they'd rescued 88 victims. And they said that was the sum total of all people that were needed to be rescued in the U in, across England and Wales. Hmm. And we set up in one city and we rescued 110 victims in our first year. So what does that look like? Most people, when they hear human trafficking, they hear what they've seen in a movie, yeah. Liam Neeson, you know, it's, it's everything's taken. Uh, and, and so they equate that. But human trafficking goes much further than sexual exploitation, does it, it, it not? And, and that's your your first one that, that, that you guys explored was something different. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And, and, you know, we're all into having a unique set of skills like mm -hmm. Liam Neeson would have. Uh, and, and coming from Northern Ireland and him being Irish, it, it, yeah. it's also a kindred spirit. But I, I think some of what you see in the movies is not altogether true. Um, girls aren't aren't normally chained up. You don't have people put on drugs and, and things like that because it's all too expensive. You know, gotcha. if, if, if I have a girl in sexual exploitation, uh, we've had girls that have been brought from Eastern Europe to the UK. Mm -hmm. All I need to do to force that girl to continue serving man after man is to show her a recent photograph of her parents back in mm. the Eastern European country she comes from. 
yeah. and say to her, if you go to leave, I'm just going to kill your parents. And from that position of mind torture, mind control, yeah, yeah mind control, you end up mm-hmm. staying. But, but it extends much further than that. So that first year when we rescued 110, the youngest victim for sexual exploitation was just three months old. Mm. We, but we uncovered a bed manufacturer and this bed manufacturer was making beds for two of the largest retailers in the UK, kind of equivalent to over here, Nordstrom and Target. Yeah. And the bed manufacturer themselves, we rescued 33 Hungarian nationals. And these guys were being beaten and tortured. In fact, it was described that the trafficker would bring in them in groups of six and he would hang one of them in front of the others. And when they're writhing about and it looked like they were going to choke to death, he'd cut them down and said, if any one of you six leave, I'll kill the rest of you. That's how bad it was for them. And they were starved of food, beaten in, in, in so many different ways. And when we saw them rescued, it really hit the headlines mm-hmm. because it was the first occurrence of slavery in the supply chain of a major multinational business. Mm-hmm. The people who were buying the beds from those two large retailers in the UK had no idea mm-hmm. that there were slaves that were making their, their, their beds that they were lying in bed at night yeah. with. But the reality is that that's happening not just in the UK, it's happening all over. It's happening all over the world. And and there's actually, there's some corporations and we're not going to name or talk about any of those corporations and it's actively known that they use slave labor yeah. and they will not renounce it. And they won't. And, and I'm going to venture to guess they're not part of the slave free alliance, yeah. uh, which is which is something we'll talk about shortly. But when when you talk about mind control, mm-hmm. when you talk about uh, beatings and things like that, you also have to, to talk with the guys here. They're, they're listening in the ladies that are listening the tactics mm-hmm. that a trafficker will use when, you know, they offer your, your family member a job mm-hmm. in a foreign country. And when they, when they land, they take their passport mm-hmm. and they can't get back. They can't do anything. So they are enslaved mm-hmm. over a passport. Yeah. Right. It's just that simple. Um, or in Vietnam, we've talked to Vietnam in a gold mine mm-hmm. and the people are starving. And so they'll trade a five pound bag of sugar mm-hmm. for a child. Yeah. And they'll send their child to work in a, coal, in, a, in a gold mine at three and four years old. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. There's, there's horrendous things that happen all over the world. And I think when people start to realize the products that they're buying on a regular basis mm-hmm. can be made by slave labor, then they start asking different questions. Mm-hmm. So an example of that for me would be... Um, you know, you're many, many women of husbands who might be watching this or, or women who might be watching this might mm-hmm. love a shimmer effect of, of, of makeup, mm-hmm. but that comes from a product, Mica. Yeah. It's also the product that enables uh, the pearlescent effect on vehicles. Mm-hmm. But the majority of that Mica is mined by five-year-old children in Madagascar and India. Okay. But they don't tell you that when you go to the dealership and you want that effect on your car. And, and speaking of cars... Mm-hmm. They also don't talk about batteries. Yeah, yeah. And and what share with us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so you know, we're all into um the world that we want to live in and the world that we want to create for our children. Uh, we're we're well aware that the indexes now are showing that there are much more carbon in the atmosphere than there has been. And there's a lot more of a drive towards electrification of vehicles. I'm not coming against that in any way, but what I would say is that as a result of that, there are unintended consequences. So to, to have a car battery, whether it's a Tesla or other brands that are available, they all use a, a particular component in their batteries called cobalt. Mm-hmm. It's actually found in everyone's iPhones, everyone's mobile phones has a, a degree of cobalt that's in it. Mm-hmm. 70% of cobalt is mined by exploitative workers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. So you want to have your electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. The reality of it is that it's going to lead to people being enslaved. And what we're seeing now with the drive towards seeing electric vehicles move across the board, the demand for that is going up. So more people are being enslaved. Mm. It can it can come into areas where, say, for instance, you want marble tops for your work surfaces in your kitchen or you have a loved one pass away and you want to have a marble headstone. Well, the reality is now all of that is coming from open cast mines, primarily in India. We've been to one one just one open cast quarry. And there were 30,000 families that are debt bonded to the quarry. That means that their family owns a debt to that quarry for whatever reason from the past. And it passes generation to generation to generation. They're not allowed to leave. They're given a portion of what they're earning that covers just their food. 
but they can't earn enough to get their families out of those circumstances. So you might want to have that amazing work surface at home, but you don't realize what it's actually going to mean for the people who are enslaved in another country. And it can also be in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're now starting to see massive numbers of exploited workers in agricultural and food settings. We're now starting to see it in, in meat manufacturing and, and meat growing across the board. Mm-hmm. Large-scale migrant workers that are exploited because they, there is no low-skilled migrant visa that they can come into the country specifically for. What's happening in the U.S. is we're seeing, uh, on an industrial scale, exploitation happening. What would you say the numbers like that are in the U.S.? And I know that Hope for Justice is intimately involved in legislation and how that goes. I'm not going to ask you to get into specifics because those things are, are delicate, but what changes do you see coming on the horizon? I don't want to get away from the slave free Alliance. I want you to talk to that after this, but as we see more migration and more refugee influx into the United States, if, if people are not followed and there's not a visa attached then you have opportunity for exploitation. And what is the, what do those numbers look like? So I, I don't want to, I want to be really clear on this. At the moment, there's two types of exploitation that you'd almost see. Mm-hmm. There's those people who might be migrants who might come here and, mm-hmm. and they might be not documented, but then there's exploitation of people who are American. Okay. So the numbers at the moment for runaways, mm-hmm. somewhere between one in four and one in six runaways. So those are kids who run away from home. Yeah. One in four to one in six will be led into exploitation. That's girls who run away from home for whatever reason. There could be something going on at home. They might have lost a loved one. They might be dealing with mental health issues. Whatever it is that's gone on that's led led to them leaving home. Between one in four and one in six might end up in a brothel. Now that's well, something you've got to think about. And you don't think about that. Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not people coming in from foreign countries. They're someone's daughter. Someone's some sometimes in terms of circumstances and how they can happen. Yeah. But then there's also the the migrant aspect of it and in terms of numbers coming across the border, a porous border that's allowing people to come into the country but not be documented and not be assessed. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they feel that the only way that they can earn money is on the black market. They go and take a job where they're fearful that if they could get, you know, anyone finds out about what's going to happen, they're going to be deported. And that gives a a competitive advantage to the trafficker. Mm -hmm. That gives them a, a hold over those individuals themselves. Uh, the numbers at the moment are estimated globally that there are 40.3 million people who are held enslaved across the globe. Mm-hmm. Those numbers are going to be revised up later this year because the numbers are going up so much more significantly and we're more aware now of how things are happening. But the U.S. Um, Governor Schwarzenegger brought in in 2000, um, he brought in a really great piece of legislation in California. Mm-hmm. It only was based in California, but actually it was a precursor to other laws in other countries that have come through. And it was asking business to state on their website, if they turned over $100 million in revenue, mm-hmm. that they would say what they were doing around slavery and their supply chains. Mm-hmm. Well, all of that has led to now, in June of this year, the US government have recognized an area in China called Xinjiang. And you might have heard about it on the news where the Uyghur population is and people are enslaved. Mm -hmm. Products coming out of Xinjiang are able to be sold at such a competitive advantage internationally because it's all made from slave labor. Mm -hmm. So an example of that is solar panels. So at the moment, um, there's a key ingredient of solar panels, polysilicate. Mm -hmm. And the polysilicate, 60% of the world's polysilicate is coming out of Xinjiang. Now, the U.S. government has seen this coming through and said, this is not right. And I I commend um, Cardell, who's heading that up for Homeland Security, a chap I met in Houston recently, and the whole team. But what they're changing the game from being is innocent until proven guilty to you're guilty if you're bringing products from that area, unless you can prove it's not been made from slave labor. Gotcha. So the U.S. really leading the charge on this and saying we're not going to have people, uh, other countries given a competitive advantage that's unfair to U.S. companies. Sure. It's not fair if they're using slave labor, because if we're not using it here, it means that means that they can make it much cheaper than anyone else in the world. But it's also around how wrong it is for people to be enslaved, how wrong it is to take an entire group of people and see them locked up and then force them to work in industries to benefit your country. Mm-hmm. So that was one piece of legislation we've been working with the uh, TVPA bill um, and uh, that the ability for it's sometimes called the Frederick Douglass Act. 
which was first passed 20 years ago and has had a number of iterations repassed since then, we, we led some uh, a great movement of bringing additional legis- uh, text into that legislation. It's just passed the House and it's got to go to the Senate now. And so we're, we're hopeful and prayerful that will go through. Um, but we're seeing laws like that will start to add more questions to companies mm-hmm. to do more about this issue. Okay. And I think uh, the more that we're seeing internationally, we think one aspect of it needs to be the legislation. And then the other aspect needs to be around people's buying powers and then making the right choices. I wanted to say something. Varric, pull up your phone. Do you have it with you? I do. Okay. So, Tim, uh, we knew you were coming on the show and I was really excited about it. And I've never heard of any type of slave labor in our neck of the woods, right? I mean, it's one thing to hear about it in China and India and Madagascar. But you can read the AL.com article that I just sent Varric five yeah. days ago. It was uncovered by federal and state investigators. And I, I don't want to mention who it is. I'm sure people can Google and find out, but that a very prominent manufacturer of automobiles was using slave labor and one of their suppliers in Alabama. Yeah. And what you just said, we found out that in third paragraph, the story of the children came to light when a 14 year old Guatemalan migrant child in Alabama disappeared. So it was that it was an undocumented migrant that came across and found a, found a way to make money. Right. And then entered a life of slavery. So it's one thing to hear about it happening all over the planet and think, wow, that that's horrible. How can I help? But what you said, what you experienced when they said, when you had your road to Damascus moment on sunset (laughs) Boulevard, and they said, it's happening in your country that's kind of happened to us because we just get this article that it's happening right here. It's happening in the deep South in the Bible belt where we thought it could never happen. It's everywhere. Yeah. And, and I, thanks for that, John. I think, I think for me, it's not until you realize it's happening so local to you that actually people start going, Oh, well, I need to do something about this. That's the, what we find the revelation that comes for most people is going when it, when it happens in your community or it happens to someone that, you know, when we were that first event that we were setting up, um, the stand that we did, uh, we were looking for a mom to tell her story about uh, a, a girl being fined and the joy that's in that. Because this is a dark subject. And whenever you get into it, you know, it's not it's one of those stories that won't leave you. But it also it, 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 it's not necessarily uplifting. So we wanted an uplifting story. And we looked for a mom to tell her story. And this lady came to, to bear to us. And what shocked me was my wife teaches in the same um, town that this lady comes from and she works for the local council. And what shocked me was that she was white and she was middle-class. And the story for her was that at 15, her daughter had started dating somebody else and he was 18 months older and they dated for 18 months. And he supposedly got a job in London and she was going to help him bring his stuff down to London, help him pack in and then come back. And when they went down to London, it was five years later that the police found her in a brothel mm. and he had sold her into a brothel on day one. And this guy, was, this guy wasn't just dating her, he was dating lots and lots of girls in the same scenario, willing to wait a long time building those relationship networks to have individuals groomed into that area. We see massive amounts of, of children that are part of care homes that are predators prey on to try and build relationships, offering them incentives, giving them maybe things that they're not normally used to, phones and bags and and travel and things like that. And then suddenly they're sucked into a life of prostitution. And once they're in, they're in so deep that they can't get out and the threat to life is so great. Uh, For places we see in prostitution, girls are moved every three weeks where they don't get to stay in the same place. So they can't build relational networks and they're moved across what is serious and organized crime across the board. But when you're talking about slave labor, we see it in exactly the same form. And this can happen where what happens is a business turns around and gets a contract. And that contract um, denotes that they've got to make X amount of products for X amount of price. And most businesses will try and analyze that supply chain and say, where can they cut some of those costs? You know, we might be able to get that core commodity instead of getting it in in America, maybe one state will move it to another state. The tax laws are better there. We can shift it there. Or they'll look at it and say, the manufacturing basis in this place will move it to another place. But it gets to the point where you've done pretty much all that you can do. And then it comes down to labor. 
And quite often, even just a, a way of which this can happen unintentionally, is a company will turn around and go to a labor provider and say, I'm prepared to pay minimum wage to get these people to do this job. And then they put out the job adverts and no one comes forward as minimum wage. So they go to a recruitment company and the recruitment company themselves says they'll find the people. Maybe they don't speak the language. Maybe there's little checks that are done on them, but they end up being enslaved. And we had one particular case in the UK that we, we did in 2015, where there were 400 victims in one slave gang. And it, we had last September, which is kind of four years on from, from when the principal investigation was launched to when actually it was concluded, we saw the last prosecution happened. It took four years and we were supporting 93 victims through that period of being able to provide their evidence. But that was the largest gang in European history when that happened in the UK. But we can see how it happens and we can see how easy it is for all of the products and services that we're buying to have this happen in. And we would say what makes a good or bad business is not if they've got some form of modern day slavery happening in their supply chain. It's are they prepared to look and what will they do when they find it? So how many corporations are currently signed on to the Slave Free Alliance? How can, how can the people listening to this look and see and say, okay, do I shop here? I know that what I'm buying is safe. Um, the company I buy from is not on here. I need to ask some questions. Yeah, so, so I would say the first thing is to explain a little bit more about Slave Free Alliance. So Slave Free Alliance in 2016, we were rescuing people from these businesses and we were kind of saying we can help you, but it wasn't really targeted and it didn't come across productized. Mm. So we worked with Accenture, a company that would give us advice and support as to how do we productize this for business. So at the beginning of 2018, we launched in the UK um, Slave Free Alliance and, and principally it's a support service for businesses. We come alongside them and we provide real technical expertise as to where the problems are within their supply chain. And then we help them to become a fortress to modern slavery, human trafficking happen in their supply chain. We do what we call a gap analysis, where we pinpoint the problems in their supply chain. We set that up and we've worked with hundreds of businesses now in the UK, but we decided to set up a network that people could buy into. So at the minute in the UK, we have 95 major multinationals on board. And as of last week, we have 13 of the top 100 biggest businesses in the UK on board. So the biggest of the big boys coming on board. I launched that in the US this last year. Mm -hmm. I've launched it into Norway and I've launched it into Australia. So we're picking up billion dollar companies as we go. But the reality is, Companies will only do it when people start asking enough questions. Mm -hmm. So we want to try and encourage more and more companies to get involved and to, to actually take this seriously, because for most people, it's just an extra cost. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not thinking about it until the consumer says that it has to change. Mm -hmm. So um, within people's financial accounts, it has to say what they're doing to remove slavery from their supply chains. Most businesses are doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So if we start from that place and go, but the good ones will tell you the, what they're doing yeah. and they'll go in depth as to what they're doing. Within Slavery Alliance, the majority of companies will allow us to display who they are. Mm -hmm. Some won't. Gotcha. Some just want to keep this on the, the down low that this is something that they're doing. And maybe in years to come, they'll talk about it whenever they're a bit more developed. We, we work to a level with each company where its minimum is compliance. So somebody comes to Slavery Alliance, we go, we want to try and make sure you're compliant in every country that you're operational in. If you want to go further, we're very happy to help you move further. But that's the level that we see as the floor level sure. that you need to be a part of. And for most companies, that's a big step up for what they're doing. Okay. Um, but I would encourage people, if they're wanting more information about the specific companies they're dealing with, to go on that specific website. Because we couldn't cover, the, there could be millions of companies that we could touch on that are on here. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone wants to know specifically about a particular factory or a particular company. Our aim is that through time we will develop the system so that people can be able to get to. The ultimate would be that if you people could scan a barcode and then find out what's going on. Yeah, that's Sup great. Supply chains are, are, are very fluid, so it's very difficult to create a system like that. So what we've said is that slave-free alliance is about working towards a slave-free supply chain. So the, the mentality of it is that you're going in and you're looking to try and make a difference in this area. We know that PR has become a huge issue for many companies. Mm -hmm. We had one company in the UK that one article came out about modern day slavery happening in their supply chain. Mm -hmm. And within 48 hours, they had had $2 billion wiped off their balance sheet. Wow. 
And they're because all of the big investment companies have what we call ESG boards, ethical, social, governmental boards that assess on an international basis risk to that investment. Mm -hmm. And quite often they'll pull their money out, even if they're going to lose money because they don't want the bad reputation. So it's causing more companies to look at it. So I suppose my ask would be there's bound to be people on here who are senior within companies or they could get passionate enough about this that within their company they could do something. Mm -hmm. And at that level, very happy for any of them to contact me and contact our team and we'd love to come in and start a journey of conversation. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask you that question. Uh, so thank you. Uh, that, that makes it easier. Um, when people hear human trafficking, the first inclination is, well, Guys don't need to buy prostitutes. Guys don't need to look at porn. But it's a lot bigger of, a, of an issue. So what can men do on a, just a basic level, other than not buying prostitutes and, and not supporting the pornography industry, um, in, in our workspaces and in our lives to help stop what's going on? It's not like, it's not like guys can just go buy a bunch of black BDUs and learn how to do hand-to-hand combat and go to foreign countries and rescue people. Some people do that and they wind up dead. Some people do that and they wind up in jail. Uh, That's not necessarily our job. So guys, if you're thinking that on the other side of this, that's not what, uh, what Tim's getting at. What, what is something that each person can do not only in their home to protect their family and protect their children, because you guys actually have some online teaching uh, that we'll link up when, when we, when this airs that people can go on and find out that if you're, child is online, it, it may take less than 30 minutes before an online predator yeah. connects with them and starts to starts to groom them. Yeah. So there's, right. there's a lot in, in what you said, but I, if I break it down, I, I think there there's a sense of if people will not um, grow dull to this subject, mm-hmm. if they'll not be indoctrinated by the thought of it, they'll actually start to think, I can do something specifically. So you touch upon prostitution. So I'll start mm-hmm. there because I want to cover that off. One in 10 men in the US will use a prostitute at some form in time in their life. Wow. There aren't the number of girls who, when they turn 18, want to become prostitutes. That just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the demand is still very high. So even if only it was one person, I would want to say, I'd encourage you not to use prostitutes at any point in time in your life. It creates a demand that leads to trafficking for sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. I do look at it and I go, in terms of the opportunities people have to protect their families is a massive one that people need to to take seriously mm-hmm. uh, what Verick alluded to is we we ran a test earlier this year with our investigators and it took just less than 30 minutes from setting up a fake profile of a girl for uh, someone who would look to exploit that girl for three individuals to contact them and these individuals were willing to offer money And if you imagine over a longer period of time of how much time that would take for that child's responses to wear down, wear down, wear down before they do something, before they send a photograph, before they connect in. And and I just heard stories this last week of of even someone from a very good community where their daughter did that and then was encouraged to send photographs of their baby brother. And you start to see how this can happen. So I think there's a point where we as men can sometimes abdicate our responsibility in the home, but I think we're there as protectors in the home. And I think there's a a point online where, you know, if your child is quiet and playing games, you're quite happy to just leave them. But I would encourage every single man to watch this training that we've done. And we're, we're not charging for it. We're looking to try and get as much awareness as to what people need to do, the protocols that they need to put in place and the questions that they need to ask of their children to ensure this doesn't happen because yeah. if we can set up a fake profile and it's happening within 30 minutes, it could happen to one of your children. And if you could do one or two things to stop that from happening, it would be like the equivalent of locking or, or bolting your door at home. Mm. If you knew that that stopped someone coming in, you definitely do it. Or you put the alarm on when you're leaving, you do something to try and enable it to happen. So take men, take responsibility from that perspective. If you're in a position of work, and your company are buying commodities, whatever that might be, they might be buying anything within your business, then I think the first thing you can do from a slave-free alliance perspective is ask the question, have we ever asked the question about who's making these products, where they're coming from? And normally what people say is, yeah, 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 it's coming from this great company, ABC company. They're, you know, they're good. They've been around for years. Mm -hmm. Then, Like I know Johnny down the road, it's ABC company. It's all great, never a problem. But to actually go further, 
And most companies haven't even gone beyond a, t- a tick box exercise to say that those products and services have not been made from right. slavery. So again, it changes culture when people ask questions, when people demand certain things brought within contracts. You might be on here in a business owner. You've got opportunity and your purchasing has a voice that enables people to see a change. Now, I'm not wanting to create any country as the demon place and that you avoid them with the plague, but it, there are certain commodity groups from certain places where it's very obvious that slave labor. Okay. We can make different choices. So I, I, I kind of would come back the, the, to the perspective of protect your home, protect the purchases that you're making. Sometimes don't do things on a whim. Ask enough questions. I know it's really complex. It's not, I'm, I'm not asking you to boil the ocean and do so much work that you're never going to do anything. Hit with paralysis because you think it's going to be, a, maybe it's just say the next time you're going to buy a sofa or you're going to buy a car or you're going to buy a high ticket item. Maybe just ask the, start asking the questions there. Start where you're at rather than maybe in three years time, we might ask that question. If you're building a home, maybe you might want to ask about where the products are coming that are manufactured to be in that home? Where are they being made? And and what level of checks and balances have gone ahead of them? Because quite often it's very little and we're just starting on this journey, but there is a wave coming of new legislation. There's a wave coming of awareness that even uh, I think will will shock some companies just culturally where uh, people are getting to. Because I think people have been through so much through the pandemic, but people are getting to a point of going, I just don't think that's right. And um, again, you might feel helpless, but I had this opportunity when I went to Northern Ireland last summer. Okay. Uh, we took on an, or- an organization to merge into mm-hmm. us. And I, I went to visit this place, Clifton House. And it was a really interesting kind of dynamic for me. We, we went to visit this place. It was set up for the poor and the needy. And it was set for 40 children. Mm-hmm. Within six months, this building was housing 400 children. So really phenomenal wow. stuff. But while I was there, there was a statue for a lady called Marianne McCracken. Never heard of her in my entire life. And you probably no one on here has ever heard of her either. And I was from Northern Ireland and she was from Northern Ireland. So don't feel bad in any way. But in the 1700s, when she was born, Mm -hmm. she led a movement of women that abstained from eating sugar because she heard about the transatlantic slave trade. This is before she could own a property, before she could have the right to vote. The second thing she did is with her and two other men, she led a movement for Belfast to be the first city that would not accept slave ships coming in. Hmm. And why that was so significant was Belfast was at one point in time, the richest person in New York was from Belfast because of the money they were making on the transatlantic slave trade. Wow. And the third thing she did is after Abraham Lincoln passed the Abolition Act, she would literally rugby tackle. It said she in her late years well, a few years before she died, yeah. and well on in age, she would rugby tackle people on the port side who were emigrating to America to mm-hmm. tell them that they need to go and see their senator to ensure that they had invoked the act because she was so passionate about making a difference. Now, I think if we come into this issue and we go, we're not bothered about our name being made famous, but we're bothered about the difference that we could bring. And if someone like Mary Ann McCracken, who is a woman with no rights, can do something, mm-hmm. You know, we're living in a very different age where we have so many more rights and we have so much more ability to do something. And my encouragement to everyone would be, if you get passionate about this, it doesn't leave you. You've got to do something. Sure. And as dark as it is, we get to bring so much light to this. And, and, and as men, it, you know, the one thing, like you've said, I don't want to encourage people to do. When we set up Hope for Justice, we originally said we want to hope for justice, but we need to act for justice. We set up these groups and I was hearing reports of people going and to trying to bust down brothel doors and things like that. And, and that's not what we advocate at all, because what that does is it brings short termism to it. It might make you feel great, but it won't actually change the status quo. Mm-hmm. What we need is long obedience in the same direction. And we need to do it in a professional manner so that what we do is we stop it from happening so that we're not just interrupting a trafficker's day, that we actually shut it down and stop it happening for good. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely amazing. Every, every single aspect of that, we, we have the ability mm-hmm. to effectively change the course to end slavery in our lifetimes, not next week, not next year, but in our lifetimes, Lord willing, we live yeah. 40 more years or whatever. Um, so coming full circle from growing up in Northern Ireland in a, in a house that could have been controlled by fear 
pushing past fear, pushing into exploration of the world, and that leading you to seeing exploitation in the world. And then that then pushing you to push past fear once again, that could come on you for what you're doing in, in, in just as powerful position as what your mom was doing. And, uh, and, and effectively bringing change to the world, teaching that to your kids. And that's how we build legacy. And guys, that's what we want to do with Mr. Fitz. We have an ability in every area of our lives to build integrity, even if that starts today. You can start building integrity today in that area of your life. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't become a fun person and that you lose your personality and that you are you know, so focused on things and, and to where you're no fun to be around anymore because you have to interact. Yeah. But seeing the ability and where God has put you through, like you said, long obedience and making successive steps on a daily basis. That's what we want to see everyone in this community do. Um, we will have a link for Hope for Justice. Uh, you guys can, can donate to Hope for Justice. You can do more information. I would encourage everyone to do the online training uh, with you and your family and your kids and ask some questions along the way. Uh, and it's, it's important to protect your family. That's one of our first jobs as husbands and dads is to protect our family and to say no to what doesn't come into the house and what doesn't go out of right? And, uh, and in that we can make a change. Now I'm going to shift gears just a little yeah, bit no, you on did. you, Tim, because this has been pretty, it's a heavy subject. It's been a great hour, but it's been, it's a heavy subject. Uh, you grew up in Northern Ireland, you live in London and you guys don't do football like we do football. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, you, y'all do have a little bit of NFL, uh, and now they're playing it at Tottenham Stadium, yeah, yeah, which is gorgeous. If you guys haven't <laughs> been there, uh, they're going to start playing at Tottenham Stadium. But that takes me to, to, to football. What is your team there and, and why is it your team? And explain, explain to me the whole culture of football in, in London and how, how the communities get into it and the local pub. And it just it's mind-blowing when you actually get to go. Guys, if you haven't been – Morning, Tim, to explain yeah, yeah, yeah. this to you. Because, well, yeah, who's your team? How does that work? So I, I, I have always supported Manchester United. Okay. So we're, we're going, I, I, they lost today. So it's it's, it's not, you don't worry, I'll, I'll take it. I haven't seen the game, but they, I've been sent a text message to say that they lost. Um, I grew up and and football, it, it, like it is uh, for NFL, football mm -hmm. is something you grew up with and you everyone experiences. Sure. But the root of football, why it's so big and important in the, in the country is really interesting. I don't know if you ever looked into it. Mm -hmm. So at the time where alcoholism was really booming in the UK, what we were finding is the, the social fa um, fabric of the country was really being degraded. Mm -hmm. And you would have massive amounts of people that were getting drunk on gin. And you had gin bars across the board mm -hmm. and people were turning up late for work. It was destroying people's families. The addiction was so great across the board. And some church members got together to talk about the fact that football was a great alternative for people to get involved in as a, as a way forward. So they started to invest in, I think Aston Villa, one of the first clubs in the West Midlands okay. in the UK, but it grew up around that, uh, around a great team sport that people could play, but actually is something that would take people's minds away from potentially addictions that they could get drawn into. Wow. Now we, it's grown to a point where, you know, it, the, the the amount of people who are involved in, in football, it is um, on average 8% of people across the UK will play football on an average weekend in the UK. Wow. If I put it in comparative terms, 3% of people will attend a church on a Sunday in the UK. So there's way more people going to, to watch football than there are attending churches. But there is a sense of a culture of team that is built up around it. Um, obviously, I support a team that's in the Premier League. It's really, it's an amazing thing to do. But I have a friend of mine who is the architect for Manchester United, a really great man of faith who I can connect in and we can get to see some bits of the stadium that are a bit different than sure. most people would get to see and hear a bit about behind the scenes of where things where things come. But it's it's a team I've, I've supported since I was a child. So I'm 35 years, I think, as a supporter or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and I have the, had the opportunity to take my son uh, for his first game last year nice. and on his birth, on his actual birthday. And even just to see the scale 
of where football is up to is huge. Mm-hmm. And obviously the NFL team working off, uh, working the NFL teams coming into the Tottenham stadium, yeah. they've spent so much money on making that stadium a phenomenal, um, yeah, yeah, a phenomenal way. But there's just across communities, it's a way of building into quite often poor and needy, needy communities and fe- mm-hmm. them feeling a sense of cohesion. And actually, at the time of the 1900s, you can go back into the songs that have emerged and sung in football stadiums. Yeah. And many of them were songs that were sung in churches that because there was such excitement in the air, they would break, break into song that was church-based songs. So Bread That's of Heaven awesome. and things like that. It's amazing. Yeah. So I've never heard that. I've never heard that history of, of football yeah. in, in the UK and, of course, all over yeah. Europe uh, and really all over the world. But um, I wanted to thank you for sharing that and for sharing your heart and for uh, sharing your, your childhood and everything mm-hmm. with us, all of it knits us together. I think it gives us a great picture of how we as parents and leaders get to shape what our children's future is and not by making choices for them, but opening doors yep. for them uh, to make their own choices and make their mistakes, but to make their own choices as well. And so um once again, thank you so much. Uh, a great friend. Can yeah. we'll continue to do to do life together? Uh, but thank you for joining us on no Mr. Fitz. And guys, uh, can't wait to hear your feedback on this and every other podcast. John, thank you for being with us today. And uh, I, I wish you were here with us. Uh, and next time, hopefully, we'll all be in the same place. Until next time, guys. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today at the Mr. Fitz Podcast. We'd also like to thank Tim Nelson for joining us. And if you'd like to learn more about the incredible work they do at Hope for Justice, just go to hopeforjustice.org, where you can be a part of the solution, especially on Giving Tuesday. You can also learn how to protect your family and loved ones from modern-day slavery. Until next time, take care and have a great holiday season.